awesome to be with you all today. Today we're going to be talking about financing of your music business. We've got a slew of awesome topics with some really awesome people. It's a pleasure to be here with you all. I wish we could do this all in person, of course, but we know how crazy the times are. So first, before we begin, um, wanted for everybody to introduce themselves. So I'll, I'll start and then I'll turn it over. Uh, CEO and founder of Symphonic Distribution. Obviously, uh, some people may know me, but for those that don't, uh, we've been doing this since 2006. It's been a hell of a journey and one of which continues and hope that everyone's enjoying all the different sessions that we've been doing for uh, the virtual music industry sessions thus far. So happy to be here and be your moderator and I'll, uh, I'll turn it over to my colleague, uh, Jason Jordan, to do a brief intro on himself. Hey. Hello, geez. Uh, nice to meet you all. I'm Jason Jordan. I'm a senior A&R in business development here at uh, Symphonic. I've been here almost a year now. Um, I joke that I'm a recovering A&R person. Uh, came from the major label system for about 25 years or more. Uh, prior to that, very much an independent person. And uh, it's just interesting to come full circle and bring my you know, knowledge from, from 25 years of doing this on, on a much different scale to this company. And it's been fantastic. Awesome. So nice to meet you all. Awesome. Anna, why don't, we, uh, why don't you introduce yourself to the lovely people of the world? Hello. Um, as, as mentioned, I'm Anna Bond. I am the global director, senior director of global business development at SongTrust. Um, we are a, uh, an at-scale publisher, and my team works with our business clients um, to help them you know, administer uh, the rights that they own in the publishing world. And I, I'm a, I'm a reformed label person. I was in label management for about 15 years, and then I jumped from the master to the publishing side a couple of years ago to join SongTrust, and uh, it's fantastic. That's awesome. Awesome. Elizabeth, uh, why don't you say hello to the world as well? Hey everyone. Uh, my name is Elizabeth and I'm one of the investors with MEP Capital. Um, and I guess before we start, thank you so much to the Symphonic team for putting this on and giving us an opportunity to connect with each other. Um, I work for a private equity firm that does investing in the media and entertainment space called MEP Capital. So we do investments across the board um, throughout the media and entertainment space. So one day that means that we're investing in a record label or a management company. Um, and then the next, maybe we are buying a catalog of sorts, whether it's publishing or masters. And then maybe by the end of the week, we're investing in a movie. So we kind of run the gamut. Uh, we launched our first fund in 2017. And as of now, we have over 150 million in assets under management. Um, and then my personal background, I've always kind of teetered between the music and finance industries. Previously, before joining MEP in 2017, I was with a platform called LiveAmp.com where we um, connected uh, art, independent artists with financiers, so more as like a middleman broker, and then we switched over to the finance side to actually putting where our money, where putting our money where our mouth is. Um, so it's a little bit about us. Awesome. And last but not least, Mr. Rob here. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me, Jorge. Uh, my name is Rob Filomena. I'm the COO, CFO, and co-founder of Industrial Works. 
we're a multifaceted um, platform company focused on Latin independent artists primarily. Uh, we have offices in the US, Mexico, London, Madrid, Barcelona, Bogota. So we're kind of uh, regionally very active with independent Latin artists in the areas of record label. We own Nacional Records, which is a well-known indie label here in the US. We have a management company, a uh, booking agency. We have a live events company. We put on the Latin Alternative Music Conference every year. Um, so just involved in different points in the value chain for independent artists across the Latin world. Uh, prior to that, I worked with CD Baby as their uh, first director of music publishing, worked really closely with Song Trust for a while, um, which was great. Um, so I've been working with independent artists in one way or another um, in a business capacity for, for over 20 years. Awesome. Well, thank you all very much for making the time to speak. And uh, I think we have a lot of cool topics today. So, you know, it's finance related, which uh, sometimes may, uh, may not be as exciting as actual music and creative, but it's a very important part of the day-to-day -day of musicians, record labels, artists, et cetera. So today's panel, we're going to talk pretty much about a lot of different topics around it. And we're going to sort of start from the beginning of Royalty Collection as far as how we see it from a distribution perspective, get into publishing, kind of valuing your catalog all the way to potential exits and so forth as well. We may even touch on a little bit of taxes and a whole slew of topics. So let's just jump right in and we'll start with you, Jason. So, you know, working for Symphonic, how do we as a company help artists or record labels you know, make and collect revenue? Well, certainly make revenue by uh, extending their distribution globally. I mean, much further than I think a lot of distribution companies do, um, just by virtue of the reach of their, their catalog and distribution alone, um, you know, they make money by, by that, certainly by us helping them market and to promote, you know, through pitching to editorial playlists, for instance, um, trying to help them get discovered, build their build their brand, essentially build their business through discovery. Um, you know, whether that's playlisting, whether that's advertising, whether that's, you know, very aggressive marketing, it's a little bit of a sprinkling of all of those things, I would think, in a really successful campaign. Um, Symphonic is incredibly good at doing those things and executing those, those plans. I've, I've been here for a year. I've seen it happen over and over and over again successfully. And um, when that happens, it's like a magic trick, you know, and, and for me, it is coming from a major label background because it's so you get to see it so intimately, you know, whereas sometimes you would hand over a project and pray that it doesn't get destroyed. Um, this allows me to be very much hands on from the beginning until the end through deployment and, and making sure that, you know, the, the client's income is actually realized and made superlative. You know, that's why we're here. This is what we're doing. Um, that's what curated distribution is really for, uh, in my opinion, is really to, to, to help the client make more money, essentially, and build a bigger, you know, find a bigger base. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, for those that might not be 100% familiar, obviously, we're distributing to a slew of different partners. Um, and every time, traditionally, that someone presses play on Spotify, Apple Music, etc., that's generating a royalty. So we focus on collecting a big piece of that. But there's other parts of royalty collection. So Anna you know, where does then song trust come into play in terms of the actual royalty collection pie? You know, what, um, what, how does song trust help anybody, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're doing all this good work, um, like Jason described, um, you know, making sure that you're getting those streams, you're getting those YouTube plays, you're getting downloads, you're selling physical product, you're doing the marketing work, you're collecting on the master side through your distributor, Symphonic in this case, but you need to make sure that as a songwriter, 
you're also monetizing on the publishing side, which covers the composition. So any original songs that uh, songwriters are writing and putting out there, whether they're, whether they're performing them or whether someone else is, um, you've got to get those registered with uh, performing rights organizations, like in the US, ASCAP and BMI, with mechanical rights organizations um, and, and collective management organizations, which do a little bit of both, as well as making sure you're uh, confirming all that stuff with DSPs, with YouTube directly. Um, and what SongTrust does is we work on this publishing administration specifically to make sure that we are collecting all of those micro pennies um, for songwriters. Awesome. So, you know, Rob, they really do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and just for everyone, you know, first off, everyone on here is extremely hardworking, but uh, personal experiences dealing with Anna, she is on point when it comes to all the questions that I've ever had. You know, the publishing aspect of the industry can be a little bit complex, particularly because it's a bit older, right? But SongTrust really aims to make it easy. We're very happy to be partnered with them. They've just been a delight to work with. So if uh, you can work with us, you can work with them directly, regardless. It's an important part of the business that if you are DIY or you have your own you know, record label, so to speak, then that is definitely someone you want to be looking towards partnering with. It is very complex. And you know, if you look at it in, in the perspective of who benefits from the confusion that independent songwriters have about publishing, it is people who are already millionaires. So, you know, empowering yourself and, and working with a partner who can help untangle some of that confusion is, is definitely a great independent songwriter strategy. Definitely. So, you know, obviously we have a lot of artists that are, are tuning in here and watching this, but, you know, I'm still a big record label guy at heart. And question for Rob here, you know, some artists maybe offer deals from record labels. And, and can you talk a little bit as to why, you know, it is still good for artists to be signed up with record labels, particularly indie labels, maybe a little bit of what you guys do that's different from just sort of signing up with a DIY distributor and so forth. Cause I sure. definitely want to give props to the good people over there. Um, there's a hell of a great group there and, and your development that you've done over the years has been fantastic. So just want to hear a little bit about how a record label can be beneficial to an artist and how that can even help them build a sort of financial. Right. Oh my God. So, Jorge, I'm sorry. So I'm recording something. <laughs> no worries. No worries. All right, guys, hey, you know what? Zoom moment there. It, it's live TV or live video. It's all good. I'm sorry. Yeah. Can I, uh, can I just start answering and we'll edit or do you yep. want to ask the question again? Yeah, no, go for it. I sorry. I'll actually ask it again. So, you know, Rob, some artists maybe offer deals from a record label perspective, you know, can you give insight as to why that's good? And, you know, working with record labels, how can it benefit them in the future? And, and, you know, in general, like, what are your thoughts just about record labels in general? Because there's obviously a lot of artists nowadays just working directly with distributors and so forth. So can you give a little bit of sort of the record label perspective on this? Yeah, it's a, it's a great time to be an independent artist right now. I think you have a spectrum of options that you've never had before. And you know, record labels have to adjust in kind to answer the needs of artists that have more options and have more of an ability to reach their, their audiences and, and develop a fan base than they've ever had before. We, we tend to see two different types of artists. Um, one is the independent artist that has the ability to grow their own fan base um, and keep in close contact with them, even monetize that fan base in ways that are very direct and don't require a lot of third party interaction. 
And then there's the artists that maybe haven't found their audience yet. Maybe their audience is far away and they can't reach them. They're not within arm's reach. Um, or they can benefit from big media coverage or things that, you know, certain artists that just need that more. Uh, and that's where a label can come in because a label has a team. And the way I like to think of it is, you know, the, the label's role has changed. We all know that. I think I heard somebody at BMG say that they're a services company now, uh, more, more so than the old sort of ownership model where um, the labels had tons and tons of leverage. They think they're there to serve the artists. I actually would take it a step further and say we look at relationships with artists as a business partnership. Um, and all of, the, all of the things that you look for in business partners are the things that you should look for in a label and in an artist that you might want to work with. Are they good people? Are they trustworthy? Do you have complementary skills? Do, do you do things well that they don't do well? Can you both grow as a result of the partnership? So those things become part of the calculation into how we um, address working with new artists. And that, that you know, involves transparency uh, in both directions. You know, we open up our books to them. They open up their books to us. We talk about what's possible. Um, it's much less about the old sort of A&R says, well, we're going to pick a hit and then just throw money into it and then things happen or they don't. And the artist doesn't really have a lot of, a lot of leverage. For us, it's really cooperative. Um, so that, that's what we've tried to cultivate here. And I think that the right label team, as far as an artist's long-term development, there is an, an, an added value to a label team working your releases. That I think the single most determinant factor of your sort of long-term financial success of your recorded music is having a good release, right? Because uh, certainly now in the streaming world, your recordings become an annuity that can pay you theoretically forever. So much way beyond outside of a typical release cycle. Um, we've got music that we released 10 years ago on mood playlists that, that's generating more streams now than they ever have. And it's because they had that good release. So a label can be if you think of it like gardening, a label can add that mulch to the soil that makes your plants grow stronger so that they have more longevity. So I do think there's value to it, but it is about finding the right match. There are artists that come to us um, and they've got, they've got a handle on their audience. They got a handle on their business. They're making money and they want to work with us. And we actually say to them, guys, there's nothing we can do. Like you guys are doing great. <laughs> you know, we'd rather stay fans than to try and insert ourselves into your business when we can't add value. So I think it really is about a back and forth dialogue so that you can figure out what the value is of the business partnership. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, let's get into an interesting subject that is beginning to be more sort of talked about, and this will, will definitely involve everybody in the group here because I love everybody's insight, but we'll start with, with you, Liz. You know, MEP obviously being a large fund, you know, you're in an interesting stage because you may be looking for catalogs or, you know, projects that are kind of potentially, you know, for exit, but what else does MEP does in terms of advances and how does that kind of look like and potentially what do you look for and then later, I want to ask a little bit about, you know, the right time for when artists are able to get advances and, and just opinions on that. We'll start with you, Liz. Sure. So I, I think of us as being on both sides of the spectrum. So like I mentioned earlier, we can be purely a financial buyer for an artist that has a catalog that they're looking to sell. But we can also help in being a cultivator. And the way that we do that is by partnering with folks that are either distribution companies or independent labels. Um, and maybe you, maybe you as an artist don't even necessarily know that we are there because we're a financial, we're a financial company. So maybe our, maybe we're um, very forthright with our relationship with you, or maybe we're just a silent partner where um, our capital 
was the capital that either provided funds for your the marketing of your new album or our capital was the capital that uh, provided an advance to you as an artist if you wanted to take one. So uh, I think that the way that we look at things is we want, we see, uh, we see like a, a true economic value in the music industry and we want to be the financial help that gets artists on their path, whether at whichever stage they are in their career. We typically usually work with artists that have at least some, some level of a track record of economic history, um, but we're not a major label. So we typically, as an investor, will cap our returns. So maybe we're making some kind of hurdle rate of our financing and then we exit that package and you as the artists get to keep your masters you uh, um, get to keep your copyright ownership your publishing and we made an exit out of it we made some kind of return on our funding but you end up holding what is economically valuable to you and your career um, in terms of like your longevity the copyright ownership still stays with you does that, does that answer the... Yeah, no, that, that's wonderful. Thank you for that. I think that's a really interesting, you know, sort of offering. And, and now the industry is definitely, you know, moving in sort of like that space where advances are beginning to be uh, as widely available as the aspect of distribution, right? So I, I'd definitely love to ask Jason and then Anna, then Rob, and then back to you, Liz. We'll start with you, uh, Jason, here. You know, when is a good time for someone to consider asking for an advance? you know, in your opinion? I mean, honestly, if they really feel like they, they need to scale their career in such a way that is, it's unattainable any other way, but by borrowing money, yeah. truthfully. I, I look at it as a last resort if you really don't have to borrow money. I mean, that's essentially what an advance is, you know, just to clarify with anyone watching this at the moment, um, it's no different than going to your local bank and, and taking out a, a loan. Um, there might be other uh, very unattractive um, things that go along with taking an advance, like, like extending your deal, for instance, uh, which may add length to your deal, which might have been shorter prior to, to taking money. So, you know, when, when to ask is, is when you really, really, really need it, you know, in my opinion. It's, it's not a casual ask. It's not money does not equal love in any scenario. So that's something that I really want to clarify with artists, especially is that they think sometimes, not all, but sometimes think that, you know, us having an advance is skin in the game. We already have skin in the game by having this conversation. Uh, we're, we're, you know, Symphonic at least as a, as a relatively mid-level company, I mean, we can't sign everything. And even by having them on the company on our roster alone, uh, that's love in my opinion. But Money does not equal love. Uh, it never does. It actually makes me worry about people, you know, where I'm like, how are we going to do this? Or how are you going to make this money back? You know, and I don't want an artist sitting on our roster unrecouped, you know, that, that that's always been my, uh, my goal as an A&R person is to make sure that people recoup and make money, Definitely. Uh, whether that's here or any other company I've worked at. Yeah. I think yeah. we, I think what's cool about that is like all of us may share a lot of that same viewpoint. I mean, yeah you know, as Liz mentioned, it's important to have a track record. And, yes. you know, that's why I wanted to ask that question. And I still definitely want to hear more answers. But yeah, I, I think it's totally an opinion, of course. Yeah, I mean, it, it absolutely. And I think it's just important that if you're really 
wanting an advance to use it wisely, make sure that you're able to, to actually return the investment. Reinvest in. it in your business and exactly. see some kind of ROI on it, some return on investment that you're not just painting your van, totally. you know, or doing something useless. You're doing something that you're actually going to generate money. And, and I, I, I also believe that it's sort of, if you're looking for an advance, just have a reasonable expectation that the Absolutely. other side is definitely looking to recoup within a good amount of time, not, uh, not forever, so to speak. Um, so thanks for that, Jason. That was great. Yeah, no problem. Uh, Anna, obviously you've, you know, you've worked in many different spaces before, but curious for you to sort of answer the same thing. And just in general, if you could also kind of explain a little bit um, of the difference between signing a publishing deal and then working with Song Trust as like, you know, because you guys are an administrator and how kind of advances may differ in that regard as well. Yeah, I mean, I think to Jason's point, this is an interesting time and not interesting in a good way um, for a lot of artists who rely on their touring income, right? I've, I've worked with a lot of artists who take the advance, they make the record, um, and they're unrecouped, so they're not getting the record royalties, but they're like, well, we tour, you know, 300 days a year, so we, that's, our, that's our working revenue. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of people who are in that sitting on a roster unrecouped state are now finding themselves without that day-to-day -day revenue. So, you know, that's a scary place to be. Um, obviously it's, it's unprecedented. So it's not like they made a bad business decision by, you know, there being a pandemic in 2020, but um, you know, I think that advances are something to think about pretty seriously. And I agree with Jason giving an advance doesn't mean, you know, we like your band more kind of coming from the label side, you know, it's always about what's realistic. And, um, you know, if it's a competitive uh, marketplace, if, if there's other people out there trying to sign this band, then yeah, that's going to come come into play as well. But it's also something to consider. And I've absolutely had the experience of being in a conversation with an artist who didn't go for the biggest advance or the lowest rate they went for the team that's going to do the best job, kind of to your point, Rob, what you mentioned. Um, so from the publishing side, you know, a traditional publishing deal has some things in common with a traditional label deal. You're signing with a publisher. They're going to do a certain amount of creative work. You know, generally they're pitching for syncs. They might be pitching your songs to big artists to do covers. Um, they're also going to be handling the administration work either themselves in-house or with a partner like SongTrust. We do... Uh, we do handle back office for a lot of boutique publishers. And um, you know, that's all kind of part of the package. There's often an advance involved. And you know, the term will be five years, 10 years, a couple years, it really depends. Um, but because of that advance, obviously they're gonna have to make sure they're able to recoup it within that term, um, you know, in addition to syncs with you know, the admin fee that makes sense, looking at the track record, looking at what projections are. Um, and, you know, again, there is that need to recoup in order to uh, move on if you decide that or, you know, to take back creative control and ownership over, over your compositions if you do go with a traditional publisher. Um, what SongTrust does, we don't do advances. Typically, um, you know, we have a low, a short term, a relatively low rate. And we do offer global administration to everyone. You can just sign up from song, at songtrust.com. A songwriter uh, coming in through .com will just pay a $100 registration fee. That's one time. Um, it's a 12-month term. It's a 15% deal. And basically, the $100 is just there because if we do all this work to set up your catalog and you have 100 streams total, we've still done the work, but there's you know there's no revenue for us to earn. So that's kind of our fail-safe. But um, 
we're able to keep things so simple and so artist friendly because we're not talking about advances and because we're offering, you know, this administration only, we're not doing the creative, which is a very hands-on and, you know, personnel intensive process. Um, you know, we're not leveraging relationships to get Beyonce to cover your song, you know, you and your teams, your manager, your label, your marketing team, whoever you want to work with, is doing that for you. And we're just making sure those backend collections of your publishing royalties from streams, from radio, from broadcast TV, from everywhere are being processed and collected as effectively as possible. Yeah, awesome. Uh, you know, Rob, definitely want to get your perspective from a label side and you've worn, you know, you're wearing the hat of a COO, CFO. Um, you know, what are you sort of seeing kind of like artists asking for, of course, without mentioning names, but you know, are you seeing that a lot of newer artists are really interested in advances and not so much royalties and just in general love to get your opinions on kind of this whole topic? Yeah, well, and I mentioned earlier that it's a great time to be an independent artist. One of the reasons, and I think to contextualize this, one of the reasons we're talking about advances in this conversation is because the independent sector has seen a lot of capital flow into it over the last five years or so. Um, so there's just, there's, there's more money available. So it's very much a seller's market. So we have artists from all across the spectrum, including, you know, new developing artists, um, where advances are, are a conversation starter uh, for them because they're talking to their, let's say they're from Chile, they're talking to their, you know, local distributors and they're offering money. They're talking to regional distributors, they're offering money and they oh, label, oh, what are you guys offering? So, you know, artists have a, a spectrum of options right now. And cash has become, it's become the, the primary touch point with which, with which they associate value. Um, and I think that's, I think that's problematic personally, um, because um, <laughs> I don't know that every, I, I think artists look at advances as some kind of a validation, um, more so than as a way of contributing to the long-term health of their, their personal business, right? Like getting signed to, it used to be getting signed to a major label was a major goal for a lot of artists just because they wanted to. And then, then they get into deals and they realize, well, this is not so great. Um, I think uh, money up front is a validation. Um, and I think it, what I try to do is work with the artists to figure out what do they actually need to run their, to run their business. Um, um, a lot of artists take advances and they just use it as personal working capital, um, which, is, which is tough because it doesn't last. And in many deals, that's the last money you'll see. Um, so it really is hard and it really takes a kind of a foresight that is really challenging for artists, especially ones who are, you know, as Anna was saying, who are now living without their live touring money to make decisions based on their, the long-term health of their, of their business as an artist. Um, so we're, but we're seeing advanced requests as, as part of the norm. And what we need to do is justify whether or not um, it's, it's worth the investment and also worth it for the artist, um, because we definitely do see concern about the, the dollar amounts of advances, even for developing artists, um, becoming a decision point um, for, for independence. So we have to demonstrate either we can work with them on that level, or we have to demonstrate how we can make up that value in other ways. Definitely, yeah, no, I mean, I, I share a lot of the same viewpoints, you know, from a label perspective, especially being that, you know, we work with artists and record labels as well. And, and typically our philosophy on it is always looking for that track record as well, as, as Liz mentioned. and ensuring that there are at least some sort of revenues that you can sort of forecast recoupment. So going back to Liz, um, you know, I'd love to kind of get an insight over what you guys look for from a due diligence perspective or what are some best practices? And if anybody else wants to comment, feel, you'll be able to feel free to jump in. I mean, I just wanted to kind of like make everyone aware of the fact that just because you make music, you don't get an advance. And just because you're Spotify Monthly listeners, 
maybe have just skyrocketed, that doesn't mean that it's going to be a good investment for anyone that's issuing it. So Liz, you know, you're looking at types of deals that are, you know, for full catalog purchases or just for advances. What would you recommend that someone come to the table with? Um, and just in general, anything else you'd like to add to this topic? Yeah, I think that first and foremost, what we look with when we're considering partnering with someone is what, who the team is. So uh, whether that's just an independent artist, but they're extremely on top of their stuff, they have an accountant that's working with them, their records are really clean, everything is where as it, as it should be recorded. Um, that's definitely something that we're looking for, or is it a manager that's incredibly on top of the artists that they work with? Um, and then second, I think that we look for longevity. So uh, like Jorge said, if it's someone where your street, your Spotify streams were over here last month and then they just skyrocketed up to here, that's probably not the deal that we're doing. We're doing a deal that has longevity and maybe it hasn't grown that much but it's moving at a flat it may, maybe it's growing but it's moving in a sustainable pace where you can keep that growth up so as an investment firm we don't we don't do deals where the artist isn't going to recoup because if the artist doesn't recoup we ultimately don't make money we want to see the artist recoup and then we want to see we also want to see them get out of our deal. And then if they need capital for something else, we want to be the people that they can go to time and time again, if they need it. Um, but yeah, I think the track record and team for us are the, the two most important things that we look for as, a, as an investor. Definitely. And I think for anyone watching, if you also just kind of want to know, if you're really thinking that, you know, you have consistent earnings month to month and that you can put an advance to work, you know, I think looking at it like a banking relationship, like Jason mentioned, while that seems a little bit cold and weird for the music industry is, is important because, you know, whenever we're interested in, in doing advances, you know, we're very selective about it and we're looking really at a few years worth of earnings records. So that way we can ensure that our investment is, is going to be safe. And we're typically a little bit more uh, admittedly conservative in that regard because we like to do deals where, you know, everyone is, is happy and, and that we can all guarantee recoupment. But um, that's just something that I would definitely say is, you know, ensure that you have your records ready, be organized and, and be transparent because it's serious business. And, and it can mean that, you know, you're going to be in recoupment hell, as I like to say, for, for a long time. I don't know if anybody wants to add anything else on that. And that's point. essentially well, where I jumped off is that I just would hate to, uh, as, as Rob had stated that, you know, to, to build on my, my statement that, you know, they, they see an advance as, as value, you know, it's, it's my statement is money doesn't equal love is, is very similar. Um, and uh, that does scare me a little bit only because, you know, I, 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 I think it's okay to take the advance if you know what to do with it, if you have a plan for it, if you're going to reinvest it in your business and you think you're going to actually make it back and grow from it. That's a good, that's a wise time to take an advance. But I just worry about, again, changing the terms of a deal based on somebody taking money. And if they're able to get that money from a third party that isn't us, that doesn't change the terms of their deal, then I, I feel good about that. And I also like the idea of what Rob also said is that sometimes, you know, I applaud people. I'm like, your business is doing great. You don't need a record deal. You know, coming from the major labels, 
that's what I was saying for like pretty much the last six months I was there, which is why I knew I needed to leave <laughs> that I was meeting with people who had a hundred billion streams. And I'm like, you don't need a, you don't need a deal. I'm going to like possibly throw water on your career. Like we, you, you, you need gasoline if anything yeah. and guaranteed gasoline. So that's really where, you know, you can go back to your distributor and, and probably make a very good deal. Yeah. That's um, the beauty of, of independence and in general, you know, the record labels, I think that are in the independent sector, you know, like Rob and, and the companies like SongTrust, these are the ones that in my view can really benefit, you know, the indie, but also those majors that are obviously the major artists that are now shifting from being with, with majors and looking to be more independent. It's, it's pretty, pretty solid. I wanted to touch on really briefly, just to interject something that Liz said about your data, your records being clean, your, your metadata, um, the most boring part of the music <laughs> industry. But also, you know, if you are out there, you've had some success, your metadata, that spreadsheet with your ISRCs, your ISWCs, your split information, all that stuff, like you convert that into dollar signs if you have it. Um, the better your data, the quicker you're able to get your money. Um, and, you know, particularly close to my heart as someone who works on the publishing side, but it's also important on the master side that you know who has points on this, you know, everyone who's involved and participating financially. Sorry about that. Uh, all my neighbors got motorcycles during quarantine. Um, but everyone who's participating financially, you have that information in a place and you know where it is. And if you have a manager or a business manager, you've seen the spreadsheet where they're keeping your data because that is, we have so many clients who have come to us and it takes them months to, to get their metadata together once they realize what they need. And you know, that's a couple of months of collections that they're getting a couple of months later. So I just wanted to touch on that point because you mentioned it and I think that's really important, especially for independent artists to understand. It's nice to have a living document, for instance, that just you build upon, you know, that you already have a schedule A, for instance, which is a list of all of your, maybe your, you know, in, in their, your case, your publishing uh, assets, in our case, it's your master assets, sometimes both. Um, yeah. But having that document that you can just add to it all the time and that yeah. you're not gathering, you know, panicking to gather stuff. Um, yeah. I, I like people who have their businesses together. Yeah, <laughs> I think, you know, I, I tell folks all the time that, you know, a catalog is literally building a house, especially like if you have an artist that's going to be consistent about it, you know, metadata is a foundation of it. And you want to make sure that's accurate because any mistake there could actually cost you. But when it comes to a record label evaluating you or a fund evaluating you for a potential investment, you know, they want to be able to ensure that everything is sort of tip top before they actually make it. So these, these are definitely the, uh, the, the required documents that a bank would sort of ask in our, in our field and so forth. Um, no, I, I was going to mention that too, that try, do whatever you can as an artist to make your business investor ready. Yeah. Um, because that investor could be, you know, your distributor. It could be a third party capital source. Um, it could be a collaborator that you want to work with on a business level. It could be a manager. I mean, but the, the more prepared you are as an artist, um, the better off, the better off you're going to be. Totally. And Anna's, Anna's right. It does. It does shake more money loose when all that stuff is accurate. More money comes back. It just is. A hundred percent. I think for everyone listening too, you know, getting up to speed on metadata and why it's important. You know, certainly we could do hours worth of discussion, which may bore somebody. But um, you know, the Apple style guide, which I think is incredible. Obviously, it's one of the metadata standards of the entire industry. 
is phenomenal. You know, I think Spotify has done a great job and other DSPs as well. But I would definitely put as a, as a takeaway from this to just study up on metadata because it obviously impacts royalty collection. And definitely wanted to talk about royalty collection. You know, in general, um, you know, there's many different types of royalties. Obviously, we're collecting on masters. Song Trust is collecting on composition. Um, you know, and actually, what other types of royalty types are, are there? What does Song Trust collect? And also, I'd love to get an idea of any opportunity that you're seeing kind of out there in the future or areas to look out for, for anybody that's kind of uh, tuning in. Yeah, I mean, the the opportunities are, are seemingly endless right now, especially um, during our, our no live shows uh, experience, which is very tough for me personally. Um, you know, with live streaming, there's all these different live streaming platforms. Um, they're all still figuring out how they're gonna be monetizing on the composition side. Um, of those live streams, you know, sometimes it's ticket sales, but obviously with someone like Twitch, they're doing deals now with uh, performing rights organizations. But you know, it's a different type of, of revenue. Um, historically, you would find big festivals like your Coachella's requiring waiver of all publishing rights in order to do their live streams as part of your, you know, deal with them. But obviously, you know, it, hopefully they're giving you tens of thousands of dollars to make up for that. But now with artists doing independent live streams, there is more hope that like, we'll figure out how to, how to backend monetize those platforms in a, in a consistent way. Um, I think, I think video game usage is going to become more and more interesting as time goes on. That is still a, a pretty unexplored area when it comes to in-game music usage. Um, you know, those are kind of two, two, two futures. Um, but in terms of other types of royalties that people often miss, I will say that um, we have a lot of folks who think, okay, well, I've got my distributor and I've got ASCAP or BMI, my performing rights organization, so I'm all set. But you're not, because any stream that, that you know, someone streams your song, there is both a master side earning and a composition side earning, and you actually have to sign up and register in order to be able to uh, collect the publishing side of streaming. You can do that via a mechanical rights organization in the U.S. There's Harry Fox, there's music, uh, music reports, or you can work with someone like SongTrust who's going to handle it all for you. And obviously, um, we won't get into the weeds, but the MLC registration is trying to take away some of that burden from songwriters and make it easier for those data to kind of be consistent across the industry, which is, you know, a, a, an effort I certainly applaud. Um, another type, and, and even more confusing, I think, to the average uh, artist, is neighboring rights. So neighboring rights, uh, and neighboring rights, which are, are not, they're in the UK and, and the rest of the world. Um, you get a master side royalty and a performing artist royalty for broadcast radio. Um, in the US, there is no broadcast radio uh, master royalty for a number of reasons that is, you know, very many decades old. Um, there are always people trying to change it, but the radio guys don't want to change it. Um, but there is the digital, the digital side of performance that comes with like a serious satellite play that comes with like a Pandora stream. And that is owed to the master owner and to the performing artist of the song. There's also a small percentage for any studio musicians who played on the song. So if you had a horn player come in on, on a song, there's a, there's a small percentage of neighboring rights. This is a master side royalty, but it is more like a publishing royalty in that you have to go out and collect it. 
Um, you have to register. Sound Exchange is, is handling most of it in the US, and then there are different neighboring rights organizations that handle uh, rest of world. Um, our sister company, Downtown, has Downtown Neighboring Rights, um, who collects for, for some of our clients. Um, but it is a totally different type of right, and it is something that a lot of people miss, I think, because it's confusing. I mean, you know, same with, same with publishing. It's, it's, it makes people want to just, like, hide their face and, and, like, and uh, hope for the best. Like, what, for some of our viewers or listeners, rather, like, what qualifies neighboring rights? Is it recording in a specific country? Um, what, what specifically uh, accounts for neighboring rights, essentially? Sure. So it's any performance, um, you know, that is a qualifying performance. And in the UK, EU, and most of the rest of the world, that is uh, broadcast radio is a huge part of it. Um, and in the US, without broadcast radio, it's, it's like streaming radio, any kind of digital radio usage or satellite radio. Um, and, you know, streaming radio rights are different in other parts of the world, but that's really, it's like Pandora and Sirius are kind of the biggest, uh, you know, digital rights, digital performing rights uh, collection sources in the U.S. Thank, and, thank and, you. That's, that's yeah. very important. Um, appreciate you. On the, question of, on the question of neighboring rights, I, it's, it's an area that we struggle with as well. Um, it's, it's an area of growing importance. I mean, digitally here in the U.S., it's, it's managed well via sound exchange. Elsewhere, uh, digital you know, soci societies that manage these rights on the digital side, it's pretty efficient. The terrestrial side outside of the U.S. is, is a big challenge for U.S.-based companies because the U.S. is not a signatory to the international treaties that made information sharing um, a, a, the norm amongst the, the, the sort of most of the world. The U.S. is an outlier in that we do not have a broadcast right in this company in this in this in, in this uh, in, in this in this country. And that creates um, tension with other countries because as a U.S. as a U.S. copyright owner, if I want to try and collect money in say Belgium, they're going to look and say, "Well, what can you know? What can you guys you know do for us? What can the U.S. do for us?" There's not a lot of information sharing because we're not we're not paying them for when their recordings are played on the air here, so they're not in such a hurry to pay us for uh, performances of our recordings there. I, when I say us, I mean U.S., not not us national records. So there's some like a high level challenges to making that business work efficiently. Plus the fact that it's confusing, like publishing there's a split right. There's an artist share and then there's a rights owner share. And that's really hard for people to understand as well. Also what qualifies for it. So there's a lot of gray lines and messiness um, and music rights jargon that kind of gets um, people off track. Um, and for us, international neighboring rights collection has always been has always been a tricky spot. Yeah. I think oh, sorry. No, no, no. Go for it, Anna. Absolutely. I was going to say, I think that's a really good point. The international um, neighboring rights, as well as international publishing, um, you can have your U.S. performing rights organization use their reciprocal agreements to collect any of your performances in the rest of the world, but they're very limited yeah. in, in how able they're able to do that, how quickly and efficiently they're able to do that. So just like with neighboring rights, there is an advantage to working with someone who's going to be uh, who's going to be registering directly with those global societies, and that's another angle that does make it kind of more confusing. Totally, yeah. I mean, admittedly, that's been a very challenging thing, you know, for many companies to to really be able to focus on. And I mean, the music industry continues to change. The you know, you briefly mentioned the MLC, and that also could be its own panel and discussion as well. But that should hopefully uh, aim to make things a little bit better in the future with the fine people that are, are behind that as well. I definitely wanted to touch on one topic, uh, at least even if it's just me, um, just about taxes. Um, just because that is one of the bullet points that I, I personally wanted to highlight 
Um, there's always a little bit of confusion over how that works, particularly internationally. Um, and I just wanted to kind of clarify something which I've seen has always been kind of a misconception or something that's a little bit confusing. Um, and by the way, definitely not a tax professional, not a tax lawyer, so please consult, but I must be able to, uh, to, to talk about this. Um, we sometimes get questions, you know, how taxes work, like if you're in the Dominican Republic or, you know, Brazil or any other area, um, you know, that's an important part to funding your business because that is a piece that potentially is limited from being directly paid to you. Um, if you're international, it's, this will hopefully not be as complicated, but um, effectively your country must have a tax treaty with the U.S. in order to qualify for a reduced tax withholding rate. So for example, Mexico's tax treaty rate is reduced to 10%, for example. Um, but the Dominican Republic or Brazil, they don't have a tax treaty. So it's 30% that is withheld. Now, to be specific, it's the percentage that is withheld is U.S. specifically sourced income. So instead of your entire income necessarily being withheld, it's whatever was earned in a particular territory. So that's something that we always try to specialize and, and kind of communicate about because um, it's one of those things that can be confusing. Like if you're an inter international artist looking to you know, work with different companies that are based in the US, um, the assumption is that everything is gonna be subject to withholding, but it's mostly the US piece of it. So I wanted to touch on that. That was actually a question I had gotten before the panel. So hopefully that helped answer. And if anybody wishes to add on any tax uh, specific uh, discussion, feel free. It's a fun topic, you know? Uh, yeah, I would, I would say this is something that we contend with a lot, both as a label um, and as, as an artist manager uh, and as someone that's putting tours together because we're sending artists to different countries and those fees are being paid uh, to, to, you know, outside countries and there's tax withholding issues. Um, when artists are touring here in the U.S., there's ways they can reduce their taxation by getting a central withholding agreement. Um, they can also uh, incorporate here. They can get a U.S. tax ID number and file a U.S. tax return and be treated as a U.S. Um, taxpayer for tax purposes. So that will help reduce their burden. As an independent artist collecting money from plays all over the world, if you're just like an artist and get your music out there and it's being streamed all over the world, there's a certain amount of this withholding that you're just going to have to surrender to, right? Because there's just not... I know and I've done it as a songwriter too. I, I, I can't manage withholding. Like if, some, if my music's being played in the UK, I'm not going to incorporate in the UK and attempt uh, start a local publishing company and attempt to collect the money there. I mean, the hurdles are extraordinary in, in doing that. Um, and we have, we're incorporated in a couple of different countries outside the US. And I can tell you that it is not a fun process for anybody, um, much less an independent artist trying to collect. So I think there's a certain amount of certain amount of surrender, but if you are an actively touring artist and international geos and the dollar amounts are really significant, um, you want to get yourself a local tax accountant to work with you to work out these local issues because they are, they are tricky um, and they can end up saving you a lot of money if you manage it properly. Absolutely. I think picking your battles is something that anybody should do uh, in general. And as your revenue grows, you know, that's definitely when you want to consider exploring how you can do things within territory. But I agree. I mean, there's just going to be certain things that are unfortunately the way it is. And um, one funny thing that I, 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 when I was first researching the topic about taxes and treaties years ago, it's just how long some of these treaties take to actually be negotiated. Um, I mean, some of them have been in discussion since the 90s, if not older. Um, so while we sit and wait and hope that um, the U.S. and foreign governments can strike up deals that can really help commerce and 
and economies thrive, it's something that'll be difficult. And sounds like we're on C-SPAN right now. Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll definitely, uh, you know, switch the topic to something, something more fun. As we're getting towards the end of it, I would love to just hear any kind of like, you know, best steps or recommendations that you would have for any artist or record label that's kind of looking to build a financial future, you know, within the music industry. Just anything that's sort of a top of your head um, that you would like to discuss and anybody can go first. Think of it as a business. <laughs> no, it's apart from your apart from your creative soul and expressing yourself. You have to carve out a little portion of your brain to think about it as a business. And the stronger you build the foundation of that, the better off you're going to be long term. Totally. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think my, you know, focusing on the metadata and and getting that information from step one is really important. Making sure that the team you're working with is really has your best interests at heart. Um, and you know, just, I mean, I will put in a, a small plug for a, uh, an asset, a resource that we offer to everyone, uh, you know, member or not, called the Modern Guide to Music Publishing. It's something that you could download from the SongTrust site. And if you are a songwriter, if you are early in your career, if you are an industry, you know, decades-long professional who still doesn't have a handle on publishing because it's super complex, that's where I was before I got into the publishing side, it really breaks down these are the pieces of the song. These are the pieces of the publishing side. These are the different types of rights out there. These are the different sources. Um, so I recommend if you, if you have any interest in learning more about publishing, that that's a good way, a good place to start. Yeah, I definitely want to plug some uh, knowledge bases right quick. Um, <clears throat> you know, the song trust knowledge base and, and the help resources are really, really quick and easy, you know, methods for you to kind of get educated on it. I think the, the guys that they provided the modern guide is fantastic. Um, we, our knowledge base in, on Symphonic, you can just get to it from the help uh, section of, of your login, but also within our footer and websites. And there we also try to go a little bit deeper from a tax perspective and just kind of like general music terminology. It's, it's not a bad thing to just kind of study up on things. Like admittedly, not all of, not all of us are perfect uh, in, in this whole entire crazy industry that continues to change. So continuous education is definitely key. I read symphonic stuff all the time. <laughs> yeah, and, and we are reading song trust. Look at this love fest here. <laughs> uh, I do a lot of different, you know, different PRO um, uh, newsletters. I mean, I get a lot of information from every part of the industry. So it's like, you know, nobody's Switzerland, but I'm able to drill down sort of by, uh, you know, different different information assets that are available to, to anybody. Um, there's a lot of business, you know, driven information in those uh in those newsletters even. So I, I find value in that too. Totally. And, and Jason, what are some of your, your kind of like your final thoughts and recommendations? I mean, you've, you know, you've got businesses, you've worked yeah, with artists I mean, for years, you know? Honestly, like I, I do agree. The most basic statement that Rob just said is like, think about it like a business. I mean, like, yes, a lot of this is fun, but you know, look, I didn't know when I was 16 years old and, and had a very successful punk and hardcore record label that I had a business. I really didn't. I was like, wow, this is really fun. But I paid taxes and you know, that stuff wasn't fun. But um, anyway, it, it, honestly, final thoughts are really just build a team. You know, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be the same crew for everything. You know, whether you got a great business manager, you have a great manager, you have a great distributor, you have a great label, whatever it is, like just find the best person for you in each one of those categories. 
Okay. And I think that that's the best way to succeed going forward. Awesome. Just echoing, echoing off of what Jason um, and Rob both said, I think budget, whether you're an independent artist or a label or a management company, budgeting is extremely important and you should save and target to, to dates that you know are coming up. Like if you know that you have to pay taxes on X date, don't, don't think about it later. Think about it now and plan for it. Um, and yeah, just treat, treat things as an actual business and, and keep everything neat and tidy. Totally. I mean, one of the uh, other things that are worth Googling about um, is some of the fraud that has occurred with the uh, PPP actual program. Um, so don't do things like that. Do not uh, take an advance and go and buy a Lambo just because you want to be cool. Um, you know, if you're, if you're taking advances, investment or anything, you know, put it to work wisely and, you know, that, that would definitely be my, my piece of advice. And I actually definitely wanted to, um, you know, ask one more question, kind of a little bit to Liz here, you know, in general, if artists are kind of like searching, like what's happening in the financial aspect of the industry, um, particularly like sites like Music Business Worldwide and so forth, they're seeing a lot of stories now of like funds buying catalogs and for pretty large sums. So, you know, what are your thoughts on kind of just the whole industry? Where do you see the long term going? I mean, and, and sorry, uh, this might be long-winded, but before we get to your question here, um, in general, the industry is projected to grow quite a lot between now and 2030. Uh, a lot of financial reports are coming out about this from Goldman, et cetera. And that's why there's definitely a lot of financial interest into advancing dollars, getting royalty streams from it, or even purchasing catalogs. But I definitely wanted to at least ask that for anybody that might be watching this that's now to the point where they might be looking to sort of like offset their catalogs. Um, what are kind of your viewpoints on all that? I think that from an artist's perspective, if you have a catalog that you're willing to sell, you might be able to get a really great price on it right now. Um, and it's a, it's a great time for that if you're willing to give up the rights ownership to that. Um, on the flip side, we have a lot of uh, discussions with artists that sign label deals, major label deals primarily when they were really young and uh, they want to buy those assets back now if if there's a conversation to be had and sometimes we're plugged in on that and we can try to be try to be helpful with that even though it's, it's kind of a hard process to get copyrights back from a major label. Um, but from us as a fund, I, I think we take we take a more conservative approach uh, and for better or for worse, we think that there ultimately will be a stabilization event in the future where maybe things aren't being sold for 20x uh, last 12 months earnings. Um, but a lot of people have a lot of varying thoughts on that. And if you're an artist and you're getting 20x on a really good year for you, I think that that's a great deal. Yeah, for sure. I mean, can't, can't complain for, for that, uh, that payday. Um, yeah, this has been great. I mean, uh, you know, just to close the loop from my end here for everyone that's watching, you know, our, our aim here was obviously to talk a little bit about the basics of how we collect revenue from a distribution perspective. That's a little bit known, but for you to be able to build a financial future, you know, having your music out there to earn streaming royalties is key, but then you want to be able to work with a company like SongTrust, whether through us or directly, and then if you're an artist, team up with a record label if they are of interest uh, for, for you, so to speak, 
just because of the fact that that team aspect is, is huge. Once you do build that and you retain your rights, then there's an opportunity for you to either exit or seek more financing for future projects. So um, I want to definitely thank everyone that's on this panel. This was a lot of fun. If we didn't answer any questions or if anybody watching has any questions, feel free to send them along. I'm sure on social media, we'll be able to answer quite a bit of that. So um, yeah, thank you all very much. It was, it was awesome to see you through a computer. I miss seeing uh, some of you guys, especially in person, but uh, hopefully in normal times, we can have these discussions as well. Thank you, Jorge. This was really Thanks fun. Thanks for the invite, Jorge. Have it was great meeting everybody. Have a great one. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.